Listener Production. If you share parenting with another adult, how's it going? Are you usually on the same page or do you clash over how to best raise your kid? Usually we're attracted to someone in our lives that shares a similar value system, but we don't always stop to explore the nuances of those value systems. Welcome to Episode 8 of our special series, Parenting the Parent with Dr. Rebecca Ray, where we explore what it means to be a parent, the choices we make, the ways that we cope, and how we can turn old patterns into new actions. Feed, Play, Love with Siobhan Hunt and Rebecca Ray. If you're raising your child with someone else, did you have the conversation before starting your family? No, not the one where you decided you wanted to have kids. The one where you talked about things like controlled crying, sugar intake, screen time, and who does the washing up at the end of the day? No, me neither. Today on Parenting the Parent, we're looking at parenting together and how we can get on the same page when it comes to raising our kids. Dr. Rebecca Ray is a clinical psychologist, author, mum, and the woman who is guiding us through this series. Hi, Beck. How are you? Hi, Chef. Having different approaches to parenting can lead to conflict after the baby is born. But when do you actually start this conversation? It's a good question because as you were introducing us, I feel like I may be abnormal because I'm a psychologist because (laughs) I did. (laughs) Look, let's face it, I am abnormal. Um, But I did actually have this conversation with my wife. And now I'm wondering, is it because I came to parenthood late? So I, uh, obviously, when you're making a baby, when you have two women, there's a bit of thought that goes into that. It It can't really be an accident. And so there was a time period while we were working on that particular project um, before Bennett came along where there was plenty of time and space to have those conversations. But I really think that it's important for us to say out loud that not many people think about having those conversations at the beginning because they don't always have a project to work on to create a baby. Um, <laughs> and they're just busy falling in love, right? They're busy falling in love and they're busy being attracted to one another and they're busy liking each other in the way they exist before they become a parent. So we have this identity, we have this way of moving through the world, we have this way of relating to each other. But before you add a child to that, it looks one way. Once you add a child, it looks a very different way. Yeah, I find that really a a really challenging thought because I know my husband and I definitely talked about whether we wanted kids, but I wouldn't have even known the things that we needed to discuss. Mm. That question, kids or no kids, that was the big one. So how do you even know what to talk about? I think that's the interesting question is if you do have the conversations, if there's space to have the conversations and look, honestly, listeners, there's space to have the conversations now. If your children are in high school, there's space to be having these conversations now. You're not too late. Um, I do think that sometimes we can put rules around what we should have done, how we should have been, and now we've failed. You haven't failed if you haven't thought about having these conversations, but What does open up once you have these conversations is being able to explore each other's viewpoints to be able to come onto the same page. When we're thinking about what topics to explore when it comes to how we're going to parent, 
I think one of the most important topics to think about is how were you parented and did you like that? (laughs) How did that turn out for you? And how does that then influence your perspective on how you're going to parent the children that you might have? So there's the esoteric question like, what is the influence of the stuff that you carry from your own parents and how is that going to land in your own parenting? Then there's more pragmatic questions like, <laughs> Nissa and I drove past, a, this is my wife, and we drove past a cricket field um, at one stage during the process of discussing whether or not we would go ahead and try fertility treatment to make a baby. And I said to her very clearly, Saturday morning sports are yours. <clears throat> That's it. Let's just be clear on that. If the baby or if the child is going to do Saturday morning sports, I am not standing by a cricket field um, every Saturday morning. Just no, I'm not available for that. And so there's pragmatic things like yes. who's going to carry the load of this type of stuff? Who's going to carry the load of the housework? Who's going to support the person that's going back to work, if someone does go leave the house to go back to work, who's going to be able to do the housework and what's that going to look like? What's the division going to look like between the two of you, both in terms of what needs to be done to care for the little person, what needs to be done to maintain the household, and also what responsibility you both take for continuing to nurture your relationship. And it feels like these are conversations that are almost a, a modern thing that needs to happen because I imagine when my parents had me that it would just expected that the male and the female, if you're in a heterosexual relationship, the woman did certain things and the man did certain things. Mm. So the man worked, the woman t- took care of the housework at home, but then she was also the one who had responsibilities over the children's emotions, their health, All of these things were really kind of clearly demarcated. This is your job. This is my job. But today, thank God, (laughs) things have changed and we all have different roles and responsibilities outside the home. And so these questions about what we do inside the home actually does impact that idea of, are we going to raise our children the same way? I agree with you. I do think it's thank God that things have changed. But I also acknowledge that uh, when those limitations or when that division is so clearly set out for you, it does make things easier because it takes away the decision. So I'm not saying that the loads of respective partners were easier back then. I'm just saying that you don't need to think about who's going to do what. It might be that you do it one week and then your, your partner does it the next week because they're available or they're home from work that week, it becomes confusing. And I think anything that can become confusing can lead to a sense of uncertainty and can then lead to increased conflict. Okay. So talking about that conflict, let's get down in the weeds. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things co-parents might clash over? You just mentioned before discipline. Let's start there. I think discipline is a really common thing to clash over if you've not shared a similar approach to your idea of parenting. And this is one of the things that I think might be 
uh, encompassed in what are the types of things that we should talk about if we have those conversations. I'm not sure that many people would necessarily stop to think about, but hold on a second, what would I look like as a parent? How would that play out? And I'm not sure that we can necessarily think about that easily either, because how do you imagine something that you've never had experience at? How do you know that when your child lies to you for the first time, how are you going to respond to that? What you're actually going to do to manage that situation? You you don't necessarily know before you know. And so we can arrive in a situation where the two of you think that you've got this down, right? So we can settle a newborn baby. It stopped it crying. <laughs> it lived until the six-week checkup. So surely we've got this down. It's It's fine until that baby talks back and um, all of a sudden you've got something to do around that. And or, I, or even that, sorry, just to pick up on that, which I can imagine um, many parents clashing over. If you're talking about that baby and mm. that baby crying, I have heard of people arguing over ways to settle the baby. Yeah. So one parent will say, I can't deal with this. We have to try the controlled crying method. Mm. And the other parent will say, you're not doing that to my child. That is horrific. Yeah. Just in that one situation, which is already fraught Mm. because you've got a crying baby and sleep-deprived parents, that's a different approach to parenting, isn't it? It it really is. And when I think about that, I want to talk about just quickly how vulnerable we are. It's a really vulnerable time, especially if it's your first child. Perhaps even if it's your second child, I only have one child. But if you have a second child that's also demanding things of you at the same time, it's just a really vulnerable time. And I think as we're talking about these conversations that we need to have with each other, there also needs to be room for compassion that you won't necessarily arrive on the same page at exactly the same time. And sometimes you won't even be able to have conversations with clarity and with the logical part of your brain engaged because you're just too overwhelmed by the task of parenting in the moment. How do you get through something like that, though, I wonder? Because as you mentioned there, you're vulnerable, you're tired. Yep. You, you have this persistent problem, mm-hmm. as in your baby won't settle. The baby settle. is the problem, yep. <laughs> the, <baby's>, <laughs> the crying is the problem, not the baby. <laughs> the crying, the lack of sleep. So you have to solve this problem. Yep. How on earth do you come to the same page? Because I, f- I feel like on in this particular instance, you do need to be on the same page to solve the problem. So the first thing would be to not have the conversation at that point in time. Sure, there might be a disconnect over what to do right now. And in that situation, I would say, just do what you've always done right then before you decide to try an entirely new strategy that not you're not agreeing on together. But then shift that conversation to a time when the baby's not crying and when the two of you are calm. One of the things we can't do is when our fear system takes over, when we're feeling emotionally overwhelmed, is to then be able to problem solve in a creative way and a respectful way for our partner. There's just too much going on. And so let's shift the conversation to a time and a place where both of you can actually communicate in a way that's respectful and that's loving and then come at the topic from there. The next thing is to think about what happens if you don't arrive at agreement and it's especially over something that might really push buttons for the other parent Um, and I think 
that's one of the things that is a hallmark of going on a parenting journey with another human being is that you need to understand what's a deal breaker for the other parent and what's not. If controlled crying is a deal breaker for them, do you really want to push that button so hard that you then erode the trust in your relationship with the other partner? Um, Because from here, what we need to be able to do is understand that on a daily basis, you and your partner are making a zillion micro decisions and those micro decisions are sitting on the basis or the foundation of the shared value system between the two of you. If your partner then can't trust you to respect what is a deal breaker for them, then it's not going to bode well for your relationship and to bode well for the security of the family system as a whole. I think it's about understanding where are the limits here. There might be things that you have a lot more flexibility around, like it might not matter if bedtime is a bit later tonight or if you know dinner was Vegemite on toast instead of something that had veggies in it. But if you know that that particular thing for your partner feels harmful or it activates their fear system, I really encourage you to honour that and respect that. Because moving forward, if you do so from a place where there's uncertainty or there's a sense of mistrust between the two of you, it doesn't set you up for making bigger decisions in the future. All right. Well, maybe what we need to do is go a step back and talk about how to have that value-based conversation, yep. right? Because I think that's a really interesting point you make that you normally fall in love with someone who has a similar value system to you, but you don't explore the nuances of that. Yeah. So how do you even have a conversation about what your values are? When we talk about values, one of my favorite techniques ever, and I actually use this perhaps not on a daily basis, but certainly on a weekly basis myself, is connecting with your 80-year-old self. (laughs) So when we're talking about value systems, rather than making this something kind of airy-fairy, instead, I just want to invite you to check in with your 80-year-old self and whether or not she, he or they would be happy with the decisions that you're making today. It's a really quick check-in to help you to understand what's important to me right now. What do I want to stand for as a human being? And who do I want to be for the people around me? Now, that's a way to connect with your values. But then we've also got your partner who has values as well. Now, whether or not you sit down and you have a conversation about their 80-year-old selves, go for it. I have done it with Nissa. Um, (laughs) But it's a really important thing to be able to come back to when we're talking about parenting, we're talking about who we want to be for this little person, but we're also talking about who we want to be for each other and ourselves. So the conversation is perhaps broader than what we think about, because usually when we think about parenting, we think about this kind of singular relationship, which is you know, how I pack my child's school bag and what goes in their lunchbox. It's about you and the child. But it's actually far more complex than that because it involves the entire system. So if you think of your family system like a garden, I want you to have a conversation with your partner around how we nurture that garden. How do we um, pour into it and how do we fertilise it and how do we make sure that we're growing things that we actually both want to see grow rather than just letting the weeds run wild because no one's actually tending it. It's a bigger discussion than just 
how much screen time are we actually going to allow our child? So there's a difference between values and goals, and that distinction is probably pretty important. Now, most of the time when we're having values discussions, we're thinking about ourselves, you know, not because we're selfish, just because we're human and most humans are wrapped up in their own stuff most of the time. When you're having these value discussions, when it's about your family, I want you to think about when you're living by your values and your partner is aligned with their values, you have a foundation that is unbreakable. It then means that you're able to parent your child from the same page, which provides your child with an entirely psychologically safe and regulated environment. I just want to put this in context of modern parenting. When it comes to some of the things we clash over, and I want to take screen time as an example here, I feel like modern parents have this weight of judgment on their shoulders. Mm. So you might clash with your partner about the amount of screen time your child is having. But if you went back to that values conversation, you'd think, well, actually, it's not going to kill them. Like Mm. we're not talking, they're not on the screens 24 hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. So how much does that kind of idea of you have to be the perfect parent play into this confusion over whether we have similar parenting values or not? Such a great question because... I think that speaks to the times where we can all lapse into parenting from a place of shame and it's about outside judgment. But no, it's really important. We cannot go out to dinner and let him sit on his iPad during dinner because what will people say? People are going to look over and they're going to see him on the iPad and think that we've just got this kid on a screen 24 hours a day. And when you're coming at your parenting process like that, It's from what you're assuming you're going to receive, whether it be from strangers around you in a restaurant or whether it be what your parents might say to you when they visit or what you know Jack's parents do because they're much better at you at organising activities that don't involve screens. How that can influence the two of you, though, is that then you actually become disconnected from what's truly important to you as a couple and you individually as parents, and you start to insist on things that don't actually belong to you. So it's a really good thing to stop and go, hold on a second, is this mine? Is this stuff here mine? Or is it actually about an uncomfortable feeling that belongs to someone else? Now that leads me to Um, values misalignment because (laughs) that is also really uncomfortable and it's fantastic data for you to use to come back into alignment. No one lives by their values 100% of the time. No one. No one can stay 100% aligned. And so when you're in a position where you feel like things aren't working, you know, perhaps um, you're not on the same page with your partner. It's It's just not looking the way you want it to look. That discomfort is showing you that you're out of alignment and there's a way to come back into alignment by having these conversations again. So think of values alignment like an ongoing process between you and yourself as a parent and the parent that you want to be and between you and your partner as the parents and the parenting unit that you want to be. What can continual misalignment between parents and their parenting style What kind of impact can that have on kids? When parents are on the same page, we have a foundation that you don't really need to think about. 
So if there's sustained misalignment of values, your parenting in one way, your partner's parenting in a completely different way, then what happens is your child ends up in the middle of that, even if your best intentions are that you wish that they weren't in the middle of it. Whenever you and your partner are disconnected or not united, your kid is in the middle of that, then having to navigate where their loyalties lie, how they need to behave in order to make sure that there's um, less conflict in the environment. So what it does is it shakes the foundations. Now, that's not to say that you need to avoid it 100% of the time. Sometimes we just can't because we don't know that these things will show up. When they do, the most important thing that you can ever do when you're coming back into alignment with your values is how you repair. It's not about being perfect from the get-go. It's instead about understanding what information your emotions are giving you and then being able to use that emotional discomfort to be able to come back into alignment and repair well when it needs to be done. So is that repairing happening with your partner or with your children? Uh, if it's happened in front of your children, then certainly repair with your children as quick as possible. But when you're in a pl place where your fear system has calmed down, so you need to down-regulate before you then go into the situation to co-regulate with your child. Once you do that and you essentially restore their sense of safety, then repair with your partner. And it all depends on timing. Like if you have an argument just after the kids go to bed, then you may have time to repair with your partner before you have to then parent again before yeah. the kids wake up. It depends on the situation and the timing. But I would always say that as quick as possible, repair with the kids. And the, the thing that you're showing the kids in doing this is we are all human and making mistakes is not a permanent state of being. And our worthiness, essentially, the underlying message is our worthiness doesn't change when we make mistakes. Could we use that and apply it to a situation? Mm -hmm. So let's say you have different approaches to discipline. Yep. Uh, for example, one parent yells and the other parent doesn't, and you're disagreeing about how that happens. How do you repair that? Because I can imagine that if, you know, one partner yells at the kids and the other parent yells at the partner for yelling at the kids, very confusing situation. How do you repair that with both your child and your partner? Mm, we need to step back before repair because it depends on how sustained this pattern has been as well. So how long has this pattern been going on? If you've been having a conversation with your partner about this for five years, you know, <laughs> yes. that you really don't like them yelling, then essentially what's happening is your partner is continually pushing that deal breaker button with you. So that's something that happens between the two of you. That's a conversation where you need to come back on the same page between the away, two of you, like take you it away from before. the kids. That's yep. right. If we're talking about a situation that was perhaps stress induced, so COVID or something that has entered the family, like perhaps someone's passed away and there's a higher level of stress while that's being dealt with and it's out of the ordinary, then yes, absolutely go to the kids and explain to them that you didn't show up as the mum that you wanted to show up as. And sometimes that happens when we're under stress and I apologise for speaking to you like that. And instead, can I try again? Can I say that to you differently? Because also what you're showing them is when they become dysregulated and scream and throw their toys, that 
there is a way to come back around that, but you need to regulate first. Can you ever apologize for the partner who's done the yelling? <clears throat> like in the sense of saying, yeah, you didn't deserve that. Yes. Not to put blame on the other partner if they just, you know, had a moment of insanity or whatever. Yeah. Like you say, they were just under stress, but maybe they don't see yelling the same way you do. Yes. But you want to repair for the child so they don't feel bad yeah. about being yelled at. Yes. Can you do that without shaming the other partner? Probably not. Okay. I, I, I think it's important that we distinguish here who owns what and mm -hmm. what is the intention behind your repair efforts. If it's to restore the psychological safety of your child, then fine. But if you continually step in and apologize for your partner's behavior to your children, then what that shows your child is that apologies don't mean much because the pattern continues. And in fact, you're the parent that's allowing it to continue because you're apologizing, but not actually doing anything to set boundaries around it. Now, I, I think it's important that we go further because you don't actually own the behavior. The behavior didn't come from you. So again, it depends on the age of the child. So sometimes if we're talking about, say, teenage kids who are starting to have semi-adult relationships with their parents, then I am a firm believer that we are responsible as individual parents for the relationship that we grow with our children and so that's probably a values-based conversation to have behind closed doors with your partner, that who they are with your children is their responsibility. But if we're talking about young ones that don't necessarily have the abstract thinking to be able to have a conversation like that, then yes, you can restore safety, but just be aware that if the pattern keeps continuing, what messages are you sending? You need you know? to have that conversation again away from the children about, Talk about yes, your if this is a deal breaker, particularly mm. between the two of you, that the yelling is not okay with you. You know, you can't continually go and be sweeping up the pieces of that behavior and making it okay if that behavior is just going to repeat. All of these things are challenging yeah. when you love your partner. Yep. But we still need to parent with someone else even when we separate. So I can imagine that is even more fraught. Mm. Do you have any advice on how to find common ground when you're actually not in a relationship with your co-parent anymore? So, I mean, we can probably make some assumptions that if you've separated, perhaps your communication's not amazing. <laughs> um, <Yes. laughs> but there's also times where we just evolve differently and you can separate and still go on to have amazing friendships. I've known couples who have done that and have actually been more successful parents because they separated than if they had have stayed together. So the research actually shows us that providing an emotionally safe environment is more important than providing an environment where parents actually stay together for the sake of the children. So there are times where the separation itself will be so healthy for the both of you that it actually becomes easier to co-parent because you don't have each other's stuff and you're not trying to maintain a relationship that doesn't really have legs anymore. Now, if you're in a situation where you're trying to co-parent with a co-parent that's not co, um, <laughs> that yes. really only has one view and that's their own lens and they're not, they're not willing to see your perspective, then what I really encourage you to do is to understand that 
you're going to make life much harder for yourself if you try to control things that you can't control. So as a control freak myself, use your control freak superpowers for good. And that is to manage your environment to make it as psychologically safe and regulated as possible for your children and to understand that you can be the person and the parent that you want to be. But what happens outside the home in the co-parent's house is what happens in their house. Look, finally, sometimes you might have to agree to disagree. Mm. How do you do that without confusing or negatively impacting your kids? I really think that agreeing to disagree can happen without them as viewers of that. They don't necessarily need to watch you have an argument and then get to the end where there's folded arms and backs turned and it's fine. Let's agree to disagree. Now, if you can communicate at a level of emotional maturity that allows you to say, look, I'm not sure we're seeing each other's point of view. Let's agree to disagree right now. And it's said like that, go for it. Amazing. But if it's not said like that and you can't trust that there's not some emotional barbs that might be thrown in that conversation, then do it behind closed doors. Don't do it in front of the kids because you've got to remember that you and your partner have history. There's years, potentially, there's potentially years and years of your history that informs each conversation. Now, when you're talking about the most important people in your life and you're having conversations about that, that can become fraught. And so it's difficult. Don't make it harder for yourself by then having to have a very clean, calm conversation because the kids are watching. Beck, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Chef. That was episode eight in our series, Parenting the Parent with Dr. Rebecca Ray. For all our previous and future episodes, make sure you follow Feed, Play, Love on the Listener app. Coming up in our next episode, we're looking at when you're parenting on your own and how to manage the challenges of being a single parent. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love, a listener original podcast. If there's something you'd like to learn more about, email me at feedplaylove at sca.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. For more great kids and parenting podcasts, check out the Listener app and don't forget to follow us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.